0: Hello, Tim Bellpot listener. I just wanted to throw out a bit of a disclaimer that these early episodes, we were still figuring it out, and we got better in pretty much every way. Definitely audio, storytelling, joke-telling, research. So, um, you know, maybe start with episode 20, but if you still want to see what the growing process was like for us, continue listening to these early ones, because I could see all oh, that's fun, but, um... Just know it gets better. Hi, guys. I just wanted to let you know that since the last disclaimer, we've gotten so much better at making disclaimers. Like, for example, um, this one has lasers. This one has some dinosaurs.
1: I even talk like a robot in this one.
0: And if you want to listen to an episode, like, without any disclaimers, I would say um, maybe like... Twenty-seven, I think Bruiser Brody, I think that was like the first episode where we figured out kind of, oh, this is what we do. So yeah, no disclaimers on that one. Um, I mean, you can listen to this old ass episode. I wouldn't, you know, and I fucking wrote it and edited it and researched it and all right, well, uh, enjoy this episode.
1: Listen, if somebody was going to do a podcast about the great Bruno San Martino, you'd have to start. In obviously Italy and the Madison Square Garden where I met To and then the Vince senior and <laughs> the Vince jr and then Vince one Vince two <laughs> Vince three <Ah-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha>. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. uh, it's me mancal Jake Manning uh, doing my Bruno San Martino impersonation which sounds a lot like uh, my Dracula or Count
2: Dracula I thought the thing was gonna be the the, the trivia is the Bruno San Martino was actually the count on Sesame Street, yeah, little, yeah, known no little, 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 little known fact, Little
1: one knows. little known fact, a little known fact, he is that. I didn't realize that uh, Abruzzi, Italy was so close to Transylvania, <laughs> idea. I was unaware of that
0: fact. All right, welcome to Tin Bell Pod, where we discuss the life and death of pro wrestlers. I'm Nick Alexander, I'm here in the Manning Cave... <laughs> He's way too happy about this. I am joined by MMA nerd and artsy movie expert, Michael Loving.
2: Yeah. I don't have any uh,
0: refs to shit on. Go on. <laughs> and we're sitting here with the man scout, Jake. Man scout is two words, Manning.
1: The living legend, man scout, Jake Manning. Endorsed by Bruno San Martino and Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
0: All right, this is going to be our first dip into the olden days of pro wrestling, because today we're covering a man that sold out Madison Square Garden 187 times. He held the world championship for a combined 4,040 days, and he was the walking embodiment of the American dream, not Dusty Rhodes. (laughs) He was Bruno Sammartino. Now, Bruno gets called the Babe Ruth of professional wrestling, and I think that's how I view him because he's someone I've always heard about. I've seen random clips. I've heard the epic stories and the impossible-to-believe numbers. But like Babe Ruth, his entire career was done before I was even born.
1: Yeah, and you, when you talk about, you know, Bruno, like when you talk about, like, success or, like, you know, even just in a joking manner or you're talking about, like, Oh, it's about as successful as Bruno in the Garden. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. like that's like the analogy you use for how successful or how something great is. Like, oh, is it like Bruno in the Garden? <laughs> like it's that that's just the top, the pinnacle of what you refer to as success.
0: Yeah. I remember the first time I ever even heard of bruno because you know my prime wrestling years the 90s he wasn't even mentioned in the business for yeah. reasons we'll get into later the first time i ever heard about bruno Martino, i was going down this pro wrestling rabbit hole <laughs> i ended up looking at wwe title runs yep that's exactly. really. I, was, I was about to jump in on the I, same thing and i was like holy shit this website has a <laughs> typo on it this is clearly not correct this uh, man had this belt for 43 years. Yeah, it was. like You're I,
1: probably looking at it when they're trading the belt every 40 days, yeah, yeah. and you're seeing a man hold it for, what is it, Almost seven years? years? Yeah. You're like,
2: did, it, did the thing go out of business, and then it re-upped <laughs> yeah. it? it? was just, they they counted it?
1: Yeah, like, did he only defend it three <laughs> times a year? Like, how is does he that a even...
2: super Brock Lesnar that doesn't do even less? How is this possible?
0: What makes it even more
2: incredible is that
0: he wrestled every damn night and defended it, you Every-
1: which we'll get into that i got some stories about that as well but you know, let's just jump it on the rest of him. so
0: uh, <laughs> after covering bruno after watching a few of his matches after hearing him speak for hours and hours <laughs> he's the real dill on yeah, so many different levels i i am a huge bruno sammartino fan right now
1: oh yeah he's he's the man and then i'm not just saying that because he looks like a well, he looks—he looks like a younger version of me. Like I look like, like <laughs> a, his yeah. bald head, mustache. Um, that's how he looked out when he looked in his 70s. I look like him, and I'm 36 years old. So he looked like a younger version of Jake Manning and,
0: in, a, in his 70s. In so. a Pokemon evolution—it's you, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Bruno Sammartino.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I could only wish. I could and, only
0: wish. He's also—he is maybe the most loved wrestler of all time like 80s hulk 90s rock and austin even today I like on youtube on every bruno video it's just flooded with comments of people like pouring their hearts out yeah. about bruno san martino
2: stories about him watching him with his dad and going there and crying during matches yeah. just the emotion that he pulled and put into people
0: it was insane so before we get into Bruno changing wrestling forever let's get into his beginnings and boy his first eight to ten years on planet earth are not very good so uh i forgot to brush up on my italian before doing this bruno Leopoldo francisco san martino was born october 6 1935 in piso frento abruzzo italy yeah. to alfonso and amelia san martino a lot
2: better than your japanese a lot better
0: <laughs> He was the youngest of seven children, and he was a survivor as four of his siblings died at an early age. When Bruno was just three months old, his father went to America to work in the steel mills of Pittsburgh. And while living in Italy, this whole kerfluffle happened. Really? Uh, You're going to turn into a Sesame Street? It was was, was, uh, World War II, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, During World War II, Italy fell to the Nazis, who were real dicks. You can quote me on that. It was September 8th, 1943, when the SS finally made their way to Bruno's hometown in Piso. And the people of Piso had never even seen a car before, <laughs> but they were being approached by trucks full of SS soldiers, tanks and bomber planes. Bruno said it felt like it was the end of the world. The people of Piso were forced out of their homes, and they had to take shelter wherever they could, and those were the lucky ones because Bruno said that a third of his town were murdered on-site by SS soldiers. The uh, eight-year-old Bruno, his sister Mary, his brother Paul, and his mother Amelia, would flee to a mountain called Valaraca, where they would hide from the Nazis. So Bruno's mother, Amelia, is a bona fide badass. Yeah, she is like the Navy SEALs of moms. <laughs> While hiding in the mountains, she would walk two-day round-trip into German-occupied towns scavenging for food and supplies. Not only could she have been killed by literal Nazis if she was spotted, but she also had to watch out by bombs that the British were dropping on Piso trying to get the Nazis out. Ugh. While hiding in the mountains during the winter, all the San Martino family had to survive on sometimes were snow for up to two to three days at a time. So eventually two Nazis found them in the mountains they were hiding out. Uh, Bruno and his family were lined up and the Nazis were setting up a machine gun and even in the face of sure death Bruno's mom Amelia kept everyone calm and positive and Bruno said he felt at peace which think about that an 8 year old child making peace with death is very heartbreaking yeah
2: she was telling him that they're going to heaven and everything's going to be okay and he was okay with it And, it was, and he, Bruno's telling these stories and he's so happy and okay and I'm just like oh god <laughs>
0: fuck uh, this is a comedy podcast <laughs> But luckily for the San Martinos, their lives were saved when two men making their way up the mountain to see their family snuck up on the Nazis, killing them with knives. But this wouldn't be their last run in with the Nazis. Uh, Amelia would once be captured and put on a truck they were taking her north when she jumped off of a moving truck to hide in bushes and briars knowing that if she was found she would 100 be shot and there was definitely an explosion behind her after, <laughs> as she jumped off the truck for fucking sure
1: meanwhile bruno's <laughs> dad is working in a steel mill going gosh i've had a really tough day
2: <laughs> <laughs> cut cut to five seconds five minutes of him like this fucking hangnail is really yeah, this, annoying. This
1: factory work is not what I thought. Of. This is a really tough day. Oh. Just,
0: Still man. hurting my ass. <laughs> so Bruno, Mary, Paul, and Amelia survived on Valaraca for 14 months before the Germans were ran off by Allied troops. Which, yay, but it's not like they just went back to school the next morning and worked the next day. You know, the people of Furetto returned home to find their town littered with dead bodies, their homes in shambles, parts of Pizzo, literal minefields. All they could do is start rebuilding, took what the Germans left behind as far as guns and ammo, and they formed a militia. And with the help of Allied soldiers, they were able to fight off any attempts for the Germans to come back to take Pisa. Whew. Now, if that's not a rough enough origin story for you, Bruno at this time was also suffering from rheumatic fever and almost died. His mother, in a desperate attempt to save his life, even put leeches on Bruno to suck out the infection, which may or may not save his life. Uh, there's a lot of science that argues against the leeches. Hey, she didn't do any bloodletting, so yeah. you know, hats off to her.
1: But there's a lot of uh, decades of medical history that say that leeches are good for no, you. No, it's true, so, it's true. Up until that point.
2: She didn't rub chicken gizzards on him, so she's doing all right.
0: And, you know, we make a little light of at Bruno's dad uh, taking it easy over here in America. He was actually had his own hell to deal with. When Nazis were controlling Italy, not only could he not travel back, no mail could get in and out. So he had no clue if his wife and children were alive or dead. So soon after, America would win World War II all by themselves, and not because Stalin no, threw millions no, of no, Russian bodies. And impossible. We didn't have a huge public school uh, marker. Um, <laughs> it was then San Martinos were finally able to reconnect with their dad in America through letters sent by the Red Cross. This was in 1945 when they finally. Like, it was a couple of years with no contact. So Bruno's parents started making plans to come to America. And they almost came two different times, but Bruno was so sick, he couldn't pass the physical. But in 1950, Bruno finally passed the physical, and the San Martinos hopped on a boat to join the the dad over in Pittsburgh.
1: And this story is already better than most stories we've discussed on this podcast. In fact, that uh, his earlier life was uh, turned into a movie, or were discussed to turn into a movie... Or at least I read somewhere. It was supposed to be a movie. Bruno,
2: yeah. Did lots of attempts to do it. But obviously with Bruno, he had his convictions and they were trying to Hollywood it up. Uh, and they tried to turn it into something bigger and better. And he was like, no, you just tell the story as is and it's a good enough story. But uh, yeah, he had, his integrity wouldn't let him make it into this big spectacle. So they,
0: he declined. according to him, he declined. They just changed his name to Private Ryan. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. That's what that movie is. Yeah, it's good. When the San Martinos arrived in the U.S., Bruno spoke no English, and he was sickly from the war years. At this time, he was 14 years old, and he weighed 83 pounds. And this made him an easy target for bullies who, in person, online bullied him.
1: (laughs) Imagine that. Imagine
0: that. So eventually, Bruno made (laughs) friends with Maurice Simon, who took Bruno and his brother to the Young Men and Women Hebrew Association. I was gonna do it's fun to stay at the I'm I'm just gonna see
1: yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe just skip it because I'm fighting every ounce of energy in me to to get on a soapbox thing about how we treat immigrants today and I was how say,
2: we didn't mention Trump once. With these, the whole, uh, these these horrors
1: and atrocities yeah. are still going on in the world, but more updated. And yet, uh, we are yelling at people that are in a caravan. It's like
2: even back crazy. then, he failed the physical. What is this an NBA trade? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs>
1: what the fuck? I mean, it, it's it's lucky that you know. Amelia San Martino wasn't suspected as being a, a Middle Eastern that might sneak in and be a terrorist.
0: Imagine if someone was standing at the gates of America sh- shooing people away. We would never have had Bruno San Martino.
2: That's. I think that should be the news spin that we, <laughs> the Fox News, has to deal
0: with. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it was at the Y M Y H Y M H at the Young Men's and Women's Hebrew Association (laughs) that he discovered amateur wrestling and his deepest passion, weightlifting, and a path was set for Bruno San Martino to become one of the greatest wrestlers of all time.
1: And isn't that the way it always works? You're small, you're you're bullied, you discover weightlifting at a community center, usually you're never like involved in like high school athletics or or school athletics and you just discover it on your own you get your own passion for it as opposed to being forced upon you by a coach like hey you need to put on 20 pounds worth of muscle no you discover it on your own you turn into this monster and then you become a huge success story
2: as bruno said in some of his shoot interviews like when he was doing it when he was starting off just like internally to himself he was like there was something special that is going to come out of this yeah
0: As far as pro wrestling, Bruno's dad rented out a room to an Italian family and they had this new modern contraption called a television. And they invited Bruno to come watch Italian boxer turned pro wrestler, Primo Carnera. From that point on, Bruno was a fan of the sport. By 58, just eight years after coming to America, weighing around 80 pounds, Bruno Sammartino had bulked up to an insane 265 pounds. In 59, Bruno even set a world record in bench press, lifting 565 pounds without a bodysuit or wrist straps, and done without steroids, which didn't become popular with, with athletes until the 70s. And he also had the two-second weight, too. He didn't yeah, immediately yeah. pop it up. He
2: held it and then popped it back up.
0: In a video, Kevin Sullivan was talking about how strong Bruno was, and he said with a bodysuit and wraps like today's powerlifters use, Bruno easily could have done... 700 pounds but we know what kevin sullivan yeah has been a part of <laughs> he could have done a thousand had he only participated in a sacrificial ritual to the lord of darkness <laughs> that's a good point to all the kids up there yeah it's a, good, a real good point and Also, while we're talking about how crazy strong Bruno was, we covered Lex slamming Yoko, Hulk slamming Andre. Bruno slammed the over 600-pound Haystack's Calhoun. Again, steroid and cocaine-free. Which was one of the early
2: uh, spots that really put Bruno on the map, because everybody's like, Haystack Calhoun, this dude is just a walking, just monster. And Bruno, was he, challenged him on like radio and the promoters gave him shit. And then he finally got his opportunity, and he was talking about how when he—it's like can he really get him up? Can can Bruno get this monster up? And we're like he said, just the energy in in the uh, in M- MSG when he like he went to pick him up, and they're like, <gasps> yeah. And and then he finally did it, and that like Bruno says that was the first thing he always in, is indebted to Haystack Calhoun just for for letting him put him over like that. First off, Haystack Calhoun's one of my favorite names
0: in general <laughs> of all time. One of the funniest, greatest names ever. And I think Haystack was billed at, like, 606 or something. Bruno said they put him on some type of, like, cattle scale or something. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. actually, like, 620. And, they, so-
2: and then later in the later in his years, he would, like, lose some, or lost some weight, and then people would slam him and said, that oh, we sl- I slammed Haystack Calhoun. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Bruno was like, but I slammed him when he was his
0: fattest. I <laughs> mean... Mm-hmm. After high school, Bruno was offered a wrestling scholarship from the University of Pittsburgh. Bruno knew he could wrestle at that level, but he didn't think he could handle the academics. Bruno is a very smart, very well-spoken man, even speaking in a second language, which is mind-blowing. But it's hard for an immigrant to come straight to America and learn advanced levels of subjects from English textbooks, especially when the attitude is These goddamn Italians coming over here with their endless fucking breadsticks and pasta primavera. I'll tell you what, you can take your magic breadsticks. You can get out.
1: These damn Italians living in their neighborhoods believing in whatever god they believe in <laughs> over there. They're probably overthinking about some terrorist attack, but just like that Mussolini fella.
2: That's what they are.
1: Yeah, that's what they are.
2: I, I just like Nick, uh, Nick's rage. It's just like I make good food at a good restaurant. Fuck the Olive Garden <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: oh, Barry Algarve. <laughs>
1: but that's, that's part of the reason that br- probably Bruno became what he became as far as like, I have to make sure I have to speak very well. I have to come off as a very honorable, respectful man because of all of these stereotypes against Italian people because they were there's prejudice against them, much like we have prejudice against every immigrant yeah. now today. So it's like I have to be at my best behavior at all moments in time. People are looking for me to fail, or they're looking at me at an opportunity to tell me no for whatever I ask for or need in life. I have to be better. I have to be stronger. I have to be yep. as smart as I possibly can. So I just put him on such a straight... And, and direct path to whatever he wanted to yep. achieve and success in life.
0: Totally, 100%. So Bruno ended up not going to college. His dad got him an apprenticeship as a carpenter, and he also joined the National Guard. While working his regular jobs, Bruno was still wrestling. He was still lifting. He won a weightlifting contest, which got him a spot in the newspaper. That newspaper article landed him a spot on sportscaster Bob Prince's TV show, and it was there he was spotted by Rudy Miller, who worked for Vince Sr. Impressed with Bruno's size and amateur wrestling background, Rudy sets up Bruno for a tryout in Washington, D.C. at the headquarters of Capital Wrestling Corporation. And that is where Vince Sr. and the pride of Garden Grove, Iowa, (laughs) Tootsmont, Uh, tootsman, can we get up? That's when they met Bruno. And, and just what?
1: the way Bruno said it, I was like, Tootsman. Tootsman. <laughs> tootsman. <laughs> and Vincino. Now to, now Toots did most of the booking. <laughs> Vincino handled all the TV. I'm sorry, what did you say? Tootsman. What? what? <laughs> tootsman. <laughs> it's so good. It says so um, Like I don't want to hear anybody else say Tootsman <laughs> other than Bruno tootsman. San Martino. Just, it just rolls off his tongue far easier than anybody else's.
2: Oh, you know, Toots. <laughs> oh, well, That's the thing,
1: like all the old-time, you know, old Toots. Oh, you know, Toots. Oh, Toots Mon over here. <laughs>
0: well, old Vince Sr. and Toots Mon. They, they liked Bruno. They offered him a job and scheduled him a couple months to start training. Bruno would make his professional wrestling debut with studio wrestling outside of Pittsburgh on December 17, 1959, God. pinning Dmitry Grabowski Gra- in, yeah. in 19 Sorry. seconds. Now, we're at the wrestling portion of Bruno's story. Let me say his career is hard to cover. He wrestled in the 60s, the 70s. This was before there were TV tapings and pay-per-views every two days. If there were a lot of coverage, it would take us 10 episodes to cover (laughs) Bruno Sammartino. Most of Bruno's info comes straight out of his mouth during shoot interviews and documentaries, which is nice. Bruno seems like a very honest guy with integrity, Unlike some shoot interviews, you can take Bruno's word as gold. But that's how guys trick you when you really think they're telling the (laughs) truth. That's how they trick you.
2: I'm just just putting it out there. Are
1: you disparaging the good fucking goddamn name of Bruno San
0: Martino? (laughs) I'm putting the old age-old philosophers uh, questioning out there of always doubt. Always doubt. WWE Network has a decent collection of matches starting as early as 74. The earliest I found on YouTube was a match in 63. But Jake, the wrestling encyclopedia that you are, I wanted to ask, for some people who have never seen a full Bruno Sammartino match, how would you describe Bruno's style, maybe some of his moves? What was a Bruno match like?
1: Well, uh, you know, in doing a lot of research of this, you know, wrestling was different because he was still viewed by a much larger portion of of the country as being legit yeah and and part of the way that you do that is obviously there's a lot more wrestling because wrestling's on the marquee so you're gonna do a lot more wrestling holds which are a little bit more believable you're not gonna do a whole lot of whipping off the ropes except in certain moments and times and backdrops and suplexes are a little bit more believable so like grabbing a guy wrestling guy picking him up and slamming him down so You know, Bruno is doing a lot of that because he's a strong, strong man. And people can buy that someone who looks like Bruno San Martino can pick somebody up and give them a backbreaker. Like that's that's fairly believable. But you're not going to see guys coming off the top rope. You're not going to see a lot of a lot of backdrops. You might see a drop kick from somebody. So the whole style is very um, thought under the lens of like we need to make this look as realistic as possible. It's almost like if you take UFC now and you're like, all right, let's let's put a few fancy things in there. Yeah. Like it, it'd be it'd very, be very similar to that, but we can't have as many strikes obviously. So let's take the mat base, you know, judo style of which you'd see in, in MMA, but let's take out the strikes, you know, and replace it with like clubs across the chest. And, and just kind of put in a couple of high spots, a couple backdrops here. So it'd be very similar to that. But like I said, someone like Bruno, like a strong man, him picking up guys and suplexing guys, it's a, it's a believable thing. A lot of bear hugs, a lot of power moves. Yeah he's just very legit Showing that strength yeah exactly because uh, you know it's a feats of strength like and at this time like another man picking up another man I mean, that's that's a big deal like <laughs> he could hit he could hit a vertical suplex and people would lose their damn yeah, mind yeah, yeah. or him picking up another man and dropping him over his knee like bane would be like a big deal so <laughs> like, and it'd be believable for bruno samatino who's built like bane yeah so cool.
0: After Bruno's debut, he began wrestling for the McMahon family's Capital Wrestling Corporation, having his first match against Jack Vansky, December 22, 1959, and Jack Vansky was one of the guys Bruno worked with during his tryout. Bruno was kind of hanging around the bottom of the card, which frustrated him, and to make matters worse, Buddy Rogers came into the territory and dominated as the top star. And not only was Buddy Rogers wanting to stay on top, he wanted to get his friends over by using Bruno as enhancement talent, which Bruno refused.
1: That's one of the things that Buddy Rogers did. Like, it's very similar in the sense of Hulk when he went to WCW. He got all his friends hired, and one of the things that Buddy did was he would bring a crew of guys like, hey, these are the guys I like hanging out with, (laughs) and they're really good wrestlers. And some of them probably were. They're probably good wrestlers but they would do a lot of times is they would go to a territory hot shot the territory which is like do a lot of angles and, and do stuff that usually happens over a matter of 3 months but do it in a matter of weeks or just days do a lot of money yeah and again it works great initially but then there's nowhere to go after that right. and then they just pull out and leave taking all the money and getting all the success and getting all the cuts of the houses and leave, and then the promoters went left with, like, these dead shows, <laughs> yeah, dead houses, do do and it's like, what do we do now? We just did... Three months worth of work in the matter of three days, and now that guy is gone. Who mm. came the better of it? So that's kind of what Buddy did. He didn't
2: but, quit it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, pretty much. And
1: you know, Buddy Rogers, he was he was the man in the day, and he yeah. could do that. Like I said, it's very very reminiscent of Hulk and and WCW and and NWO the stuff. Disciple. Or the clique, man.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <event, laughs> yeah. the way he took care of his people. But at the
1: same time, too, like you know, I mean, Buddy's looking out for his guys. Yeah. No, nobody's probably going to look look out for those guys, and Buddy's the top guy and he has the ability to do that. I mean, I can't default him for doing that. But yeah. when you're on the side of it of Bruno, you could be a bit more empathetic and, and see more of the other side of the argument.
0: Well, Bruno did not want to look out for buddies, guys. And since Bruno was like a year into the business at this point, this got him some backstage heat. And you'll, but you'll see throughout his life, Bruno stood up for what he believed in no matter what. Uh, whether it hurt him financially or in the business, he was a man of integrity.
1: Yeah, he's like, I'm going to stand on what I believe in because I was stuck in front of a Nazi machine gun when I was eight and I was okay with dying. So why am I going to back down to you, a guy who wants me to fake lose, (laughs) to your buddy to make him look cool? Like, I don't care. Like, you know, like I'm going to do what's right because I don't know what I'm going to have to face down that Nazi machine gun
0: again. So, which Micah is on record of calling Bruno Martino a liar and denying the Holocaust. Just, oh wait, you said, what was the second thing you said? (laughs) (laughs) So eventually they call Bruno into the office, ask him who the hell he thought he was, and he said nobody, but if he's not going to get a shot in this territory, he wants to go somewhere else, which, you know, reasonable, I guess. Bruno put in a proper notice for his release and he filled all his dates, so he thought. This part was conveniently left out of Bruno's WWE documentary. They actually set him up. They booked him for an extra date without him knowing that he obviously no-showed. Uh, when Bruno went to San Francisco to work for Roy Shire, he was suspended by the athletic commission. So Bruno heads to Indy, and basically the same thing happened to him. So Vince Sr. was trying to blackball Bruno, calling up promotions and telling him not to work with him,
2: And the whole time Bruno's in the dark on this and has no clue what the
1: hell's going on. Yeah, because he was booked in, they double booked him in Baltimore and Chicago. And because the athletic commissions are kind of in the take with the promoters, they're like, see, this guy no-showed. Well, if we we can't have people that no-show, since we're the regulatory body, we'll suspend him. And then Seniors running all the bookings. So you can say, oh, we'll we'll send Bruno down to you. Bruno not informed that he has to be in Baltimore for this. Kind of tough to know. And then all the other territories fall in line because, you know, Capital Wrestling was at that time kind of, part of the nwa they worked with the nwa but they weren't necessarily they didn't really see like they had they were close to the nwa but they weren't super close to some of their other territories but this is like a very buddy buddy system at this time wrestling is is much smaller at this time and all the promoters can work together they're all having meetings together they're all working together there's not like this big division that you know this guy can only work here or this guy or screw this guy or don't do work like he could be very close so you could blackball somebody very easily yeah. at this moment in time
0: and this followed him wherever he went so bruno was basically starving to death he had just been married at this point too he had a family to take care of so he went back to pittsburgh hopped back into construction work and it was while he was working construction that a wrestling show came to town that had his pal yukon eric on it and upon finding out that bruno was still blackballed he advised bruno to call up toronto promoter frank Tunney because toronto had a italian population of about a half a million and they thought bruno could maybe pump some life into that territory that was almost dead
1: and it's funny hearing this story because it's very reminiscent of when hulk hogan first started wrestling and he, he did it for a few years and he wasn't making a whole lot of money and he just left and he became a laborer in florida and it was jack and jerry briscoe hunted him down was like hey what are you doing hmm. you could have a career in professional wrestling yeah. and he's like i wasn't making any money i wasn't doing anything like no no, you need to give it another shot and
2: he, sorry um, what year i'm just curious I'm,
1: I'm, I'm not even sure but it was like after his run of sterling golden and starving yeah. in memphis and all this yeah. other stuff and oh, sorry, they're like and they're time like you no, why don't you give it another shot and they got him got him going again and he really kind of took off again and huh. and led to the career that he had so it's funny that two of the biggest names in professional wrestling at one point in time, like full on quit and were working a regular day job. Nope. And it was the Briscoes and the Yukon Erics of the world that just said, Hey man, you had some potential. Like here, here's an opportunity.
0: Bruno took that advice. He headed up to Toronto, making his debut March of 62. He started working at the bottom of the card. However, Bruno had some plans for self-promotion and he would soon become the man. Woo. Bruno calls up an Italian newspaper and is like, hey, I speak of the Italian. <laughs> and a reporter goes to the gym with him, where Bruno shows off his world-class strength, repping 500 pounds on bench, squatting 700 pounds. The next day in the Italian newspaper, it has a picture of Bruno with the headline, The Arrival of the Italian Samson. Yeah. And after that, an Italian TV station put Bruno on TV. And with all this targeted marketing, Bruno is as over as the Capolini with the Pomodoro. Bruno starts selling out places like the Maple Leaf Garden in Toronto, the Montreal Forum, and with Whipper Billy Watson becomes a tag team champion in September of 62, his first ever professional wrestling title. Soon he was in demand by promoters all over the Canadian territories. Eventually, Vince Sr. and the newly formed www.wwww. Www. I'm going to do this every time. Yeah, yeah, do the joke. Uh, and it's, gonna be it's a, a bit. It's epi- a, it's episode
2: a, 40. <laughs> Let's do the
0: fucking bit, please. So eventually, Vince Sr. would come calling after hearing of Bruno's success. Now, their business was actually spiraling the drain. So they came back to Bruno on their hands and knees. And damn, that must have felt good for Bruno 17. Right? Oh, my God. It must have been the best.
1: Well, that's the thing. Uh, the W.W. WF had a kind of a good working relationship with the Tunneys. Yeah. I mean for for a long time they would exchange Jack town. Tunney yeah. Yeah. Okay. this it's all part of that family so that it's you know part of the reason why Jack Tunney was Jack Tunney cuz
2: Jack Tunney was his real name.
1: But cuz <laughs> like the Tunnies were long-time promoters in that area so when the WWF was going you could get local promoters. Yeah. You know, like right. the, er- the early early days like when the WWF went to Canada you Got in contact with the Tunnies. and like, hey, we're coming to your town. We're, these are the dates. I'm like, okay, well, we will put the advertising in these markets because you, you want a local promoter to know where you could advertise for your show. Hmm. So you'd work with a local promoter for your house shows for whatever to put whatever on TV because the local promoter would know how to promote that local area right. and you would come back. To that area, if the promoter did a good job, like, yeah, thanks, Frank, for for the house. When we come back around, we'll let you know, hey, we're looking at these dates. And then Frank can go, "Uh, we have this festival going on where a lot of people go to or, hey, this thing's going on here. How about you come back here? Okay, great. And they come back here and they draw a big house. And that's how the relationship usually works. Just because Vince McMahon sitting in office. Saying, all right. it's not like he's throwing darts at there, and then he himself is calling the right. Toronto newspaper. No, he's calling this particular promoter, and all that responsibility is delegated to him. So, obviously, Finn Sr. had a good relationship with the Tunnies, and they would also exchange talent. And, like, you know, if he's going to make a phone call to Bruno, there might be some sort of compensation, like, hey, Bruno's a big deal for you, but we like to come here and be here with us. Um, in exchange, we have somebody who's finishing up here. We'll send him to you and he'll make money for you. So th- that's kind of why everybody worked together. And that's why when they fuck Bruno, they're like, yeah, sure, fuck this guy. Fuck this
2: guy. Who cares? Because we
1: work together. Yeah. And that's and th- and kind of how that all goes. But yeah, the, the, it's always been legendary that the Tunnies worked very well with Vince. It's
0: yeah, so fascinating. When Vince calls Bruno up, he played hardball. Bruno loved to punish people who treated him poorly on the way up. They told Bruno to call Vince, and Bruno was like, no, have him call me. Click. Vince finally does. He offers him $500 a week, which was a ton of money back then. Bruno says he's almost making that in Canada, and more importantly, he's happy in Canada. Click. Which any younger people listening, when you used to hang up landlines, it would click. That's that, that's that <laughs> bit. Yeah, no one understood your bit. <laughs> So Vince calls back weeks later and offers Bruno 750 a week, which in today's money is 3300 a week, even though today's money isn't backed up by gold and only holds value because the market says it does. You know what? There's nothing in Fort Knox. Fuck everything. <laughs> so Bruno also turned down that offer, and Vince Sr. flat out asked him, what's it going to take to get you back? Bruno said he'd come back on one condition. He wanted Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, and he wanted the title but they knew Buddy Rogers wouldn't drop the belt to him. Buddy was even the type who would no-show or fake an injury to not drop the belt. So knowing this, Vince Sr. and Toots came up with a plan, which Bruno said it was mainly Toots because Toots didn't like Buddy. Quit quit saying it.
1: Toots uh, Mound. He, toots. Toot, now Vince Senior, he liked Buddy Rogers. Say toots t- not so much. Uh, toots knew about Buddy's <laughs> reputation for hurting other wrestlers and bringing his own crew and harshing the territory. It's true.
2: You say it like that, it's fine. You say so. Toots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say T. I don't know. And, and also
1: too to to more illustrate the predicament that Vince Senior and Toots Mound was in like I said, Capital Wrestling was loosely connected to the NWA, but they broke off away from the NWA when Buddy Rogers dropped the NWA title to Luthez. But what they did is they never recognized that title change. And I think the title change even happened in Toronto. And so like Buddy left New York, went to Toronto, dropped the NWA title in Toronto to Luthez. When he came back to New York, the, he just had a championship belt, which that's was the difference yeah, like yeah. It's and,
2: like, man, yeah. that's the, not the most like of how things have changed, <laughs> just the and, internet and everything. And I was like, damn.
1: And no one, no one in New York knew any different. Yeah, but yeah, he, yeah. Was, but, yeah. but he was no longer the NWA champ. He was the WWWF yeah, yeah. champion, and it was like fully recognized as but the title saw a
2: belt. It's all the same shit. Yeah,
1: and they didn't think twice yeah, of yeah, like yeah. what the letters were on it because he, it was Buddy Rogers was the champion. So like now Mandela you have,
2: effect. Mandela yeah. effect,
1: But see. You, you already made this big power play and you've broken off from the NWA. So you can't go crawling back to the NWA and say that Luthes is the champion and do anything. And you want your own champion specifically for that area. And that belt is securely in the hands of <laughs> Buddy Rogers, who, you know, Bruno viewed as a con man who he didn't like Buddy Rogers because he said that Buddy Rogers would hurt guys. He would take liberties with guys uh... out of nowhere. And, and, and Bruno said his big problem with Buddy was the fact that Bruno heard all those stories about Buddy and Bruno was like, I've always been very um straightforward so i couldn't hide my disdain right. and what i'd heard about buddy right. so he kind of showed that and buddy saw that right away because buddy is
2: so they immediately clashed yeah because yeah. because Bru- I mean, buddy could pick yeah. up there was already a little bit of
1: disdain coming from yeah, bruno it's yeah, yeah. so like oh this guy this guy knows that i don't walk on water so fuck him let's get get him out of the way uh. so that's, that's part of the issues with that so bruno definitely put more heat on buddy Pushing him out than Vince and, and, and Toots, but obviously mm-hmm. Vince Senior's is coming with hat in hand. And also, too, another thing a part of the deal was is Vince Sr. paid the $500 fine that Bruno had with all these territories <laughs> oh God, that's right, yeah. just so he could wrestle again. That was yeah. also part of the deal. I'm like, you're also paying my fine, which is Basically, it's just your fault. Fair, since no, it, did, it, it is. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, but but, but you I just but I, me,
2: you unfuck me. But I just,
1: I but I just like that little small movement of a pawn. Yeah, that <laughs> is like on yeah. top of it. You have to pay this because yeah. this was the problem that you that's, created. That's right?
2: I mean, I when when Bruno does that type of stuff, I couldn't agree more. As opposed
1: to just hearing a dollar amount yeah. and like, yeah, sure, I'll take care of that. Oh, I gotta pay this too. Like, no, 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 no. I know every way that you screwed me over, and I want you to make it right. It every. Yep. Every single corner, like that, that, that is definitely dotting all the I's and yeah. crossing all the T's. and that's—that's that's what I love about Bruna in this negotiation. Not Same. only are you going to pay me this money, but I also know I have a five hundred dollar fine, which you will pay for. Yeah. And then I also want Buddy Rogers. Well, I think
2: it comes up again. Uh, well, we'll get it. I think the Australian run. Yeah, ride. yeah, <laughs> we're yeah, we're gonna anyone who screwed him paid for it later. <laughs> he, <laughs> was, sure. he wasn't a douche where he extended him or he overdid it, but he just. What was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll get into that.
0: So they came up with a plan, which I'm going to call the original screw job. Uh, and the Madison Square screw job sounds a lot cooler than the, the, the Montreal. Yeah. So they told Buddy Rogers that Bruno was getting paid $3,500 to do the job and lose to the figure four leg lock. But when Bruno and Buddy Rogers got into the ring the night of May 17th, <laughs> yeah. 1963 at Madison Square Garden, Bruno sprung the trap. He told Buddy that the finish isn't happening. I'm here to take your title. And it's not documented, but I believe at that moment Buddy Rogers shit his pants.
1: It's very much like grab your best hold. Go ahead and grab it because you're going to need it.
0: Yep. So the bell rings, Bruno charges Buddy, legit slams him, throws him over his shoulder into a legit backbreaker and says, tap or I'm going to break your back. The bell rings and in just 48 seconds Bruno Sammartino won his first World Heavyweight Championship
1: Woo! Which I feel like Buddy Rogers was like Legit gave up cuz he's like I, listen, I am not getting
2: hurt? He's yeah. so dangerous. He's probably bewildered and like what's going on? I'll I mean, just we'll, we'll deal with it. In the, we'll deal with it in post. Yeah
0: Bruno's probably the strongest man in the world at yeah. this time. What's Buddy Rogers gonna do? Or there's that whole things like this guy's gone AWOL.
2: He's gone nuts this won't matter we'll we'll do some angle we'll get it back but this guy's gone crazy so he'll get you know yeah, yeah and he
1: probably yeah. feels like the promoters are on his side
2: we'll just
1: ignore this the way that we ignored the thez title change yeah, yeah. and we'll fix this later bruno,
2: bruno went rogue like, yeah, that's the. Old, yeah. And
1: then he gets to the back and he realizes, oh, "Oh, you're on their man. side." Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah I definitely feel like that. <laughs> so aside from a tag match at Madison Square Garden, this is, would more or less be the end of the Bruno and Buddy feud. And I think in real life, and kayfabe, Bruno won.
2: Mm-hmm. What was it? Didn't Buddy get hurt? They were gonna do a rematch, and then
1: he, Buddy Buddy claimed that he had a heart attack. Buddy retired Bru-
0: after this, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but Buddy claimed that he yeah. had a heart attack a few weeks before, yeah. and that's why it turned out the way it did. But as Bru- oh, oh. as Bruno always documents, no, 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 he was working like the day before. Yeah. yeah so right if he know. had a heart attack, it would have affected him on those matches and not this match. So that's all meant. I mean,
2: Bruno gave him the
0: heart attack. So
2: yeah.
1: in that just- moment, he gave him a heart attack. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> if Rogers hadn't have retired, their rematch would have been October 4th, 63 in New Jersey, but instead that night, Bruno would have a match with the number one contender, Gorilla Monsoon. After winning the title, Bruno became a huge celebrity he was loved not just by the italian immigrants but by every race and every background he came off as a larger than life man with super strength but at the same time an every man he was the guy that came in from the old country and he had made it he was the original dusty road working yeah. man
1: not, not even the fact that he's an italian immigrant coming over he was just an immigrant And at at this time, you know, people are one generation removed from their their parents being immigrants, and and they're the first children born in America. Just the idea that he had come over and found success at this level in New York at Madison Square Garden and won the title and built the way he is, everybody can get behind that. Everybody
2: Uh, loves an underdog. uh, Italian,
1: German, whatever can get behind that immediately.
0: And to give you an idea of how famous Bruno was, he was friends with Frank Sinatra. He he worked out with Arnold Schwarzenegger. His family had a private audience with the Pope. Uh, was it Bruno was like a judge at one of
2: Arnold's early, like Miss, Mr. Olympia or
0: competitions or something? Yeah, and uh, Arnold was like, that guy's looks better than <laughs> us. Like, he's a judge. Yeah, it was something like that's how they met. And he really bought into the face gimmick. He always dressed nice. He never acted out. He wouldn't even drink if there were kids around.
2: Oh, that was one of the, I was like, that is ridiculous and silly, but I tip my hat to you, sir, because you're insane in a good way.
1: (laughs) You want to (laughs) know another good story about how good of a guy he was? The night he won the title, the way he celebrated, he was actually staying in a, like a rundown hotel, not far from the building. So it wasn't anything fancy because all he could afford was like a cheap hotel room it was like a row of hotels and they had a lot of, like, pay phones because obviously there's you no know, ho- hotel phones. So he called his wife after winning the title just to call her and check in. Yeah. And he goes, hey, honey, tonight I won the the world title at Madison Square Garden." she goes, I know, it's on the news here <laughs> in Pittsburgh. I'm aware that you just won the world title. Congratulations. You you, you you know, your mom's here and she loves you and all that. And he goes, oh, thank you. That's very nice. America. Tell her I love her too. And then he hung up went to a deli and got an entire rotisserie chicken and a quart of milk, and that's how he celebrated his first ever Nowadays, title. Nowadays,
2: <laughs> we're in some Vegas club with the music pumping no. and Cavassier and blah, 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 blah.
1: That was his world title yeah. sub- celebration was a whole chicken and a quart of milk and a call to his wife.
0: You know what? That's I, I respect that. that. whole <laughs> Bruno would be the face and ambassador of professional wrestling, uh, selling out arenas, not just across America, but across the world, with everyone in the building chanting his name, except for a few smarks in the back with Bullet Club shirts. <laughs> Over the next few years, literal years, Bruno held on to the championship, working a brutal non-stop schedule, facing and beating the likes of The Sheik, Killer Kulaski, Gorilla Monsoon, and George Still. And he wasn't wrestling your 12-minute Monday Night Raw main event, he was going 20, 30, 60 minutes a night, wrestling in an era of no safety regulations in boxing rings, and boxing rings you're legally only supposed to fall down in three times a night.
1: Yeah, and here's, a, here's the thing, because I, cause I um, did a lot of background uh, information for this podcast. So I actually did a 45-minute phone interview oh. With Bruno's agent oh. Sal, Sal Corrente, who gave us a lot of good tidbits on the Yoko, oh shit, Yoko podcast, which is available in our archives, so check that out. Uh, but Sal was telling me that Bruno, during this first title run, was just run ragged more more so than any other champion that they had had at the time yeah. especially in this territory like he was working not just the big towns but also the small towns and like I said working longer matches but like they would have like I said they'd have different promotions like in Pittsburgh and Allentown all these places and sometimes they would have the champ skip it but not with Bruno they just kept putting Bruno out there
2: because he was so big they knew the money they could get yeah, right? and yeah they, they like, could just generate all this money every and then
1: also too, other guys on the crew weren't going to all the towns but him as the champion was going to all the towns so the other guys on the undercard uh, weren't required to go to all the towns they would give them rest but him as the champion (laughs) was doing all the heavy lifting which is the complete opposite of obviously a brock lesnar we're like oh he's the top guy let's give him a break it was the opposite oh you're the top guy we're gonna work you to death so during this entire like seven-year run he is just run ragged more so than anybody else on the roster also too if you look at the like the results like you'll read some of these these listings during these times when he's the champion and he's selling out the gardens you can't recognize some of the names like you've already stumbled over some of the names he's wrestled but a lot of his undercards in the garden are guys you never have heard of before (laughs) in wrestling it's not like he has you know, Pedro Morales, yeah. Killer Kowalski, Yukon yeah. Eric, the Kangaroos. What they would do is if they had good undercard guys, like like the Kangaroos, like a good supporting act, yeah. they would put them in the B-towns and just have solely have Bruno alone in the A-towns drawing the entire house. So it was all greed, is they would take like some wow. of the more popular undercard guys and put them on the B-shows and stack the B-shows up. You know, like like the really good supporting cast. Instead of putting them with Bruno for help, for promotion, they just put them in the B-Towns. So they were basically getting two sellouts a night. That is insane. So basically Bruno was selling out the garden by himself, but he was also selling out all the smaller towns, which normally the champion didn't have to go to. So he was just run so ragged that by the time he got to like the seven-year, eighth month like spot, he was like, get this belt <laughs> off of me right now. On January
0: 18th, 1971, Bruno San Martino would face Ivan Koloff at Madison Square Garden, which is on YouTube in a condensed version of the match with some weird ass fan commentary. Oh my over.
2: god, it's so weird.
0: <laughs> the top comment on the video is the commentator overdobe sounds like he has a mouthful of fucking meatballs. <laughs> It's
2: so funny. <laughs> it's something. Um, Koloff wins with a top rope uh, knee drop. And the whole thing is like, Bruno thought he went deaf because the whole place yeah. was dead silent. And he was like, well, am I okay? And then a uh, dude came over to him and was like, yeah. And he said something to him. He was like, oh, I'm not deaf. Just, MSG was just in shock.
1: Yeah, that, that's, I think like Bill after played a audio tape of like a video or not a video, but a, a radio reporter who was there at the time. And it was recording the exact moment when the finish happened and wow. it was just utter shock and yeah. just silence had come over the building when it happened. Cause I mean, seven years, eight yeah. months, yeah. Yeah. one day, like, you know, like just Bruno was an institution. It's like the Yankees, they will always go out and they will always play and Babe Ruth will go out and hit a home run. But on this day, the Yankees don't run out of the dugout, you know, like that's like an institution. And for someone like Ivan Koloff, you know, to get a, a spot like that is, is amazing. Like for him to get the, the opportunity to be that guy is just
2: unbelievable. Seriously.
0: So, yeah, there were no boos. Bruno said that when he walked to the back, people in the crowd were sobbing. Bruno had held the belt for seven years eight months, one day, longer than John Cena, CM Punk, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, Macho Man, Ultimate Warrior combined. The only person that even comes close to that in the WWE is Backlund, who had it for 2,100 days, and Hogan with 1,400 days. So after losing the belt, Bruno took some much-needed time off. He went home to Ross Township, Pennsylvania, to spend time with his wife, Carol, who he had married in 59 and he stayed with her his entire life. They had three sons, fraternal twins Danny and Daryl, and David, who became a pro wrestler himself. As you could imagine, during an eight-year title run, uh, he didn't get a lot of time with his family, so he's happy to finally be there. When he went back to wrestling, he worked the territories and Japan, but he was setting his own schedule, and this allowed Bruno to actually rest and heal in between shots. And he said this let him love wrestling again. But in 72, San Martino was asked back by Vince Sr. for another title run, as then-champion Pedro Morales wasn't doing near the numbers that Bruno had. Vince promised Bruno not only more money, but a reduced workload, only wrestling the biggest shows. By December 10th of 73, Stan Stasiak had beaten Pedro for the title, and that's who Bruno would face at Medicine Square Garden. Now, there is also shortened footage of this match from the same guy who I mentioned earlier, so watch it at your own risk, <laughs> but this clip doesn't even show the finish. Either way, it's cool, rare footage, and I appreciate the upload. Bruno would win the match to become the first ever two-time WWWF heavyweight champion of the world. So this title run was supposed to just last a year while Vince groomed a new champion, but as promised, Bruno was actually given a lighter schedule, which he loved, So he didn't mind it when Vince never brought anyone to him to take the belt. So that one year turned into two, which turned into three, during which he'd face the likes of Ernie Lagg, Larry Henning, uh, Killer Kowalski, and eventually Stan Hansen, who he faced April 26, 1976. Snap. So Hansen was a young guy at the time who had just been caught up to New York with the help of Bruno after a recommendation of a friend who lived out in Dallas Stan Hansen's first match at Madison Square Garden would be against the man who built the place, Bruno San Martino. Maybe it was nerves, maybe it was just one of those things where you botch something. Uh, wide receivers drop passes, 7-footers miss dunks. But on a routine spot, Hansen slammed Bruno right on top of his head, breaking Bruno's neck, and it looks fantastic. Fucking brutal. Yeah, it was just a body slam. Right? Yeah, yeah. He his just body got slam, really
2: excited on the body slam. Just really
1: excited. You pick him up and you get sweaty. You get moving like that, and that's something that like when I talk to young wrestlers and especially George gave the gave the speech a lot when he would first teach young wrestlers about the body slam. Yeah. He would always say like, "Look, the body slam's a dangerous thing. Bruno Sammartino got his neck broke yeah. on a body slam." Right. Biggest name in the business. Again, Stan Hansen, another one of the biggest names in the business. Looks
2: simple, but it's not.
1: It's not. No. It's, and, and also, too, like, another thing a lot of young guys do is they'll pick up for the body slam and then move their hand and tuck not the guy's support. head. And they're like, oh, well, I was trying to protect his neck. No, don't move your hand so I don't end up like Bruno Sampertino. Yeah. Just pick me up, hold me, and then slam me down. All these guys that they want to move their hands like Shawn Michaels, but, like, if the guy doesn't have a good post on the thigh or if he misses the thigh, it, it just turns into a like whole thing. And
2: duck your head, tuck your head enough to, yeah, to compensate. Yeah, because you exactly right. so
1: it, it just it's just one of those freak things, this freak accidents. Always the example. It's always the story I tell right before I already tell these people who are already nervous about a body slam. Yeah. To, to you let, can ruin
2: a man's life. Yeah, it's like <laughs>
1: this is this is dangerous, and it's something that that fans and wrestlers like always forget about. But that story is why I've never moved my hand on a body slam ever. Because I want to make sure that I have you and I take care of you at all moments in time because just the smallest thing oh. can go wrong. And then it's just a reminder of that. And it just so happened, it happened to one of the names, biggest names in the business. And the breaking of this neck was traumatic for the promotion. I don't know if you are going to get to this or not, but he was in the hospital. Vince Senior came to him and basically said that the promotion was going to go under. Damn. It's like, we need you to come back. We need you to get out of traction. Like, there's great magazine pictures of Bruno with with the halo in the neck. And just thinking about Vince Sr. walking in and saying, (laughs) if you don't get out of this condition and wrestle the rematch with Stan Hansen, the promotion will go under.
2: Do you understand how many families will be miserable and lose money and crash because you won't help them give them paychecks? Yeah, <laughs> like, fuck! So to anybody that uh, had a bad day at work and kind of screwed up, you have hope because Stan Hansen did this and then went on to have an f- amazing, um, unbelievable almost career. Almost
1: killed the entire New York <laughs> territory. Yeah, no. On one botch, and then, so, so when we sit around and we laugh at stuff on botchamania, <laughs> yeah. none of those spots are going to take down an, an entire territory.
2: But then, but then he went to Japan to be a god, so maybe that makes sense.
0: Well, that was the whole thing with Stan, and it also speaks to the character of Bruno. He wasn't pumped that he broke his neck, but he understood <laughs> that things happen. And not only did Bruno not hold any grudge against Stan for breaking his neck, he was happy for him because Stan Hansen became the fucking guy that broke Bruno San Martino's neck and his career took off.
1: You know, sometimes it's a horrible accident. It just happens that way. And sometimes yeah. I often think like, man, I wish I'd really fuck up so I can get a name for myself. <laughs> My problem is I'm too fucking good at taking care of people and making people look good. I really need to fuck up real bad. The Zane
0: killer. Oops, killed Zane. Yeah, or something. All right, so two months after breaking his neck, For the sake of the promotion, Bruno returned and faced Hansen in a rematch on June 25th of 76 at Shea Stadium. On closed circuit TV, this was the undercard of Ali and Inoki in the Northeast. The match was originally supposed to be Bruno and Ali, but it didn't happen for two reasons. First of all, Bruno broke his neck. And Vince couldn't afford the $6 million that Muhammad Ali won. (sighs) However, Japan could. And they sent over Anoki to face Ali. Anoki was a god in Japan, but not so much in America. So tickets weren't selling. And that's why Bruno had to be on the card, even with his legit broken neck.
2: Hmm.
0: They worked around it. They had the match anyway. And the event bombed everywhere else that didn't have Bruno and Stan on the card.
1: Saving the day as Bruno San Martino could only do.
0: Bruno got a couple more weeks off to Hill and hopped right back into his schedule, working with people like the executioner number one, Stan Hansen, and Bruiser Brody. But by spring of 77, Bruno told Vince Senior that he was too beat up to keep going. He basically said, find someone now or I'm going to quit.
1: And Vince Senior was like, I've heard this one before. Yeah. Where have I heard this before?
0: Uh, I don't think you are. <laughs> On April 30th, 1977, at the Civic Center in Baltimore, Maryland, he'd face superstar Billy Graham for the title. Bruno said it was easy working with Billy because fans hated him so much. They loved Bruno so much, so they were always going to have that awesome crowd reaction. The whole match is basically a test of strength spot, which is the story they were trying to tell. Bruno wasn't always the biggest guy in the ring, but he was the strongest, kayfabe and shoot. But here was Billy Graham who could finally challenge him. Eventually, superstar Billy Graham uh, rolls up Bruno with his feet on the ropes, getting the one, two, three, and the crowd loses their fucking minds. As Uh, they should. Billy grabs his belt, runs to the locker room before there is a literal riot. Bruno's second and final title run lasted three years, four months, 20 days. After losing the title for the second time, Bruno cut back his schedule a lot, but he still worked in the US and around the world wrestling people like Harley Race, Blackjack Mulligan, and Crippler Ray Stevens. Bruno also began working for as a color commentator for the now WWF. When the great Larry Zabisco was a teenager, he lived near Bruno. And Bruno was his hero. He'd bug Bruno about wanting to become a pro. Wrestler. Stock, I
2: think stalk is, appropriate is probably He drove right. by, and Larry would talk about how he did detective work because, like, he found Bruno's address through like legit stalking detective work. <laughs> would drive by there every once in a while, and finally he drove by Bruno's house to where he saw him out there like watering his lawn or something. So then Larry gets out and like creeps in the bushes to the point where he's noticeable and bruno's like what 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 is this over here and then they made friends on larry being a total creep
0: it got so bad that larry's mom called bruno (laughs) and asked him to talk larry into going to college because larry had every intention of not and becoming a wrestler So Bruno promised Larry that if he got a degree, Bruno would help him break into wrestling and that is exactly what happened. After college, Bruno trained him, Uh, he helped him get into local shows, some national work, and later he brought him up to New York. Larry was known as Bruno's protege, but eventually he wanted to step out of his shadow and that's when Larry and Bruno had a workout match in Allentown, Pennsylvania January twenty second of nineteen eighty. The point of the match wasn't really to win, but to kind of see who could outmaneuver each other.
2: The Zabisco Bruno feud. Watching the the promos, the build up, um, everything about this is is it was my favorite part of doing the Bruno research. The way like Zabisco cuts a promo where he's like, "Everyone that I've wanted to face, I have, except you, Bruno, and you haven't done it." And Bruno reluctantly, eventually takes it because. He doesn't want to turn down the pupil. He wants to give the pupil his moment. But they finally have the match, and Bruno gets a hold, and then he releases the hold. And then they do a little thing. Bruno gets another hold, and they release that hold. And it's this whole thing of where he's not really committing to anything, so it's not a real competition. Eventually, that's what leads to Larry getting upset, and he takes a chair, and he bashes it over Bruno's head, bloodies him, colors him up, All because Bruno wouldn't take him serious as a competitor, and that's all that Larry wanted, and that's what turns this sour.
0: And that chair shot gave Bruno a permanent scar above his eye, and this would make Larry public enemy number one. Their feud led to a big blow-off match in a still cage August 9th, 1980 in front of almost 40,000 fans at Shea Stadium. Unbelievable. Which was around a $500,000 gate.
2: <laughs> yeah. Nabisco said in a shoot interview that he got 5% of the Shea Stadium gate and then uh, Bruno got 5.5 or 6%, but I, I thought that was really interesting and good, good little nerd stuff.
0: Some of that had to do with Hogan and Andre being on the card too, which no, is nah. we talked about in our earlier Andre episode.
2: I don't think it did, because uh, here, here I'm gonna totally believe uh, Bruno on this stuff, because he talks about how Hogan in his book talks about how they drew the whole card, but Andre and Hogan I think did a date like a week or two weeks ago. Where it was 3,500 capacity and they only drew 1,200. So to draw was 35,000. Like yeah. the build-up to this feud, go on YouTube, find all the Zabisco Bruno stuff. There's good, like they show the whole evolution of this. It, it, I, I fell in love with this feud watching this stuff, man. It is so good. Zabisco talks about how Bruno booked the entire feud, like the pacing of the feud, how to amp up each little moment throughout the week, and how Bruno's like slow simmering, burning, coming to a boil promos that would really pull people in. I mean, like, this is this is good shit, man, and I cannot recommend this enough.
0: The Zabisco San Martino match would win PWI's Match of the Year in nineteen eighty. Bruno was a four-time winner of that award winning the first ever for a battle royal in 72 and then three-peat at 75 76 77 feud of the year wasn't a thing yet but larry was 1980s most hated wrestler of the year
1: well and another uh, little nugget of this whole feud is people always referred to Bruno San Martino as the living legend. The Bruno Sam, yeah. Bruno San Martino. So once Larry turned on Bruno, Larry referred to himself as the living legend Larry Can Sabisco. I- so like when I finally discovered who Larry Zabisco was, not knowing who Bruno Sammartino yeah, is, I thought just, oh, calling himself the living legend is an adorable thing, that he yeah, calls himself yeah. as a heel, but finding out that there's a long you know, lineage of why he calls him that in a long story makes it that much more fascinating.
2: Totally. I mean, like, I, I knew Zabisco because growing up on Monday Nitro and the living legend Larry Zabisco yeah. is here and the human game of chess and mm-hmm. all that shit. And then when I was getting into this and Bruno's getting called the living legend and then learning about their feud, it was that good Eureka Oh, oh moment. And it was like, ah, oh man, there's just... Years later in the smallest little moments, the storyline is still there and it's still damn good.
0: Mm-hmm. If you actually watch the match, it is a lot of fun. Bruno's going 100 miles an hour. Larry is selling his ass off. Uh, eventually a bloody armed Bruno steps out of the cage, beating Larry Zabisco.
2: And then they fight outside the ring, too. Like, it's not really over. They still beat each other up.
0: After this, Bruno would work a very relaxed schedule for the rest of 1980 and into 81. And on August 12th, 81, Bruno would announce his retirement. But like 99.9% of wrestlers, he wouldn't stay retired. Uh, Well, he
1: also had to delay his retirement because they wanted Bruno to be in the meadowlands which were getting built and obviously in new york with construction things are never on time so they're like oh bruno the meadowlands aren't going to be done in time for your retirement we need you to hang on a little bit longer and it's like all right fine so like they really wanted him to wrestle in the meadowlands before he retired so he had to delay it because construction in new york is never done on time
0: this is a good conclusion for Bruno Sammartino part one, and we will pick that up in Bruno part two. So guys, do you have final thoughts on Bruno Sammartino's in-ring career?
1: I mean, he's the man. It's, just, it's as simple as that. I mean, like I said at the top of this episode, when you talk about success and you're throwing out analogies, even in a joking gesture, like, oh, it's like Bruno in the garden. Like, it's, it's just synonymous.
2: Like Nick said, when you're getting really nerdy and you look up the Wikipedia title runs and you're like, what the hell is this? And you learn about this guy and how did he do this? And yeah, I, I can't wait to get into part two. I guess, I guess I'll guess i save everything for that.
0: So let's wrap up. We're Tim Bell Pod on all the social medias. Check out our Patreon if you want to help us out. Man Scout Manning on all the social medias. This is Tim Bell Pod. Bye.